This is Holly Fry from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander. With seating for up to eight passengers and available panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with the whole family. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Ready to celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's and iHeart present Women Take the Mic, sharing empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&M's and spread some positivity. From breaking glass ceilings to dominating in sports and entertainment, women truly are unstoppable. Welcome back to Dealing Together. First caller? I bought three sweaters to get the fourth free. Oh, you got fleeced. Next caller? I traded my old Samsung at AT AT&T for a new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus and chose my plan. That's not a bad deal. It is not. Our best smartphone deals. Your choice of plan. Learn how to get the new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus with Galaxy AI on us with eligible trade-in. AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Offers vary by device. Subject to change. S24 plus 256 gigabyte offer available for a limited time. Terms and restrictions apply. See att.com slash Samsung for details. Welcome to Creature Feature, production of iHeartRadio. I'm your host of Mini Parasites, Katie Golden. I studied psychology and evolutionary biology, and today on the show, we're talking about beauty, style, pizzazz. The natural world is full of fantastic, fashionable animals, but what causes this beauty? Why is a bird of paradise so fantastic? Do the beautiful colors and crests found in birds and other animals have some secret purpose? Or do they just like looking hot? Joining me today to discuss this question is science writer for the New York Times Magazine, Scientific American, and many other publications, Ferris Jaber. Welcome! Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to talk to you. I love your articles and your Twitter feed. Often it gives me inspiration for this very podcast. And I love that you bring attention to some of these... the best word I can come up with is like whimsical, just animals that are, they seem like they're from a fairy tale, from some kind of fantasy setting, and they are amazing both to look at and in terms of their behaviors. And I just love relishing the, the these like details of beauty in the natural world. Yeah, I never get tired of looking at or talking about all the fantastic creatures out there. <laughs> yeah, I want to talk a little bit about the science the biology of beauty because it is it sounds like a very light topic uh, but it's actually extremely controversial and behind these deep schisms in evolutionary biology and it's it's a topic that is far from being frivolous but to give the listeners a sense of what we're talking about first I want to talk about one of the most incredible birds in terms of beauty and style and presentation, the bowerbird, which has always amazed me. Uh, It's the most ostentatious animal, I think, in the natural world. There are 27 species of bowerbirds found in Australia and New Guinea. They're famous for building their bowers. So, Ferris, can you describe what a bower is and what these bowerbirds do? 
So in a literal sense, a bower is this arrangement, this assemblage of twigs and wood, and it can take various shapes. Usually, you know, it might be a corridor, kind of a hallway-like structure. It could be sort of a hut or teepee, or it could be sort of a spire or pole. And then the bower birds will decorate these structures with all kinds of colorful and interesting objects like flowers and berries and snail shells. And if they're near a place where there's been a lot of people, they might even use plastic debris like bottle caps or cutlery. Um, but in a less literal sense, in a more functional sense, a bower is many things. It's a sculpture, it's a gallery, and it's a court. It's a space for courtship. So male bowerbirds are creating these structures so that female bowerbirds can come along and inspect them and judge them, you know, sort of evaluate um, how well the male bowerbird has constructed this bower, what kind of objects has he collected, how much attention has he paid to curating this collection. And that is part of their mating process. So the females, you know, they choose which males they want to mate with, partly based on the artistry displayed in these bowers. And that's very different from the typical bird's nest, right? Because there are birds who will show off their nests, like males will build a nest and show it off to the female. But this is quite a bit different from the bower itself, right? Right. And so interestingly, the bower doesn't end up functioning as a nest at all. So it's a, you know, it's entirely sort of aesthetic structure used in the mating process. The female comes along, she inspects it. If she decides to mate with the male based on that bower and based on his overall appearance and dance moves, then they will mate and then she'll fly off and she'll build an entirely separate cup-shaped nest in which she will lay the eggs. And then she'll raise the offspring entirely on her own. So the male is not involved in the, in the, you know, the, um, the raising process of the children just in this elaborate mating ritual. <laughs> so he builds this fancy dance platform, puts on a show, mates, and then is out of there. Does he mate with only one female or multiple females? I believe he he will mate with as many as will give him the chance to do so. And but females at the same time will also visit multiple mm, bowers. So I they're see. not just yeah, they're not just mating with the first one they come across. Gender equity in bower mm. birds. So <laughs> uh that's really interesting. So the bowers they don't have a practical function in terms of mating. They're not used for security protection. It is purely to set a stage for this bird's display and often it's like color coordinated like they'll focus on getting only blue things or only red things or like different colors and then grouping the colors together it to me what is striking about these bowers is they look like an art project that a human would make absolutely they they remind me a little bit of wes anderson's style of like you know highly curated things in very discrete categories but like beautifully arranged they also remind me a bit of like um cabinet of wonders you, um, you know from the 18th century and such and sort of placing things in these little dis discrete um, windows of you know to view but what's interesting is that some scientists have proposed that there may be a functional purpose for the females, which is that these structures may allow them to more safely evaluate a male up close without as much risk of the male forcing himself mm. on the female. So it becomes almost like a screen, you know, a, a physical barrier, which, um, you know, between 
uh, her and him so that she has more time to evaluate before copulation takes place. It's kind of like it's kind of like meeting at a coffee shop for your first date. Exactly. It also reminds me of these these scenes from like Jane Austen novels where, you know, people are overhearing things across like a hedge maze, you know, and one, <laughs> the characters like just across, but they're just barely separated. That Yeah, I could definitely see what is he, Mr. Darcy as some kind of fancy, <laughs> ostentatious bird. Uh, yeah, that is it is very interesting. I mean, it is it is a courtship like uh, I, I personally do not watch Bridgerton, but I would imagine it would be like a scene from Bridgerton based on what I have seen of the show. Just like this, this very and it's it's a ritual like the male. It's not just like, hey, here's all my stuff. Uh, he does an elaborate dance and she evaluates that and she either stays and mates with him or moves on to the next male. Exactly. They like the Bowerbirds just, you know, they they're sort of firing on all throttles when it comes to mating. Like they have the colorful plumage, they have the elaborate dance moves, they have crazy cool songs, and then they have these probably, you know, one of the most compelling examples of what could be considered art in the animal kingdom. I, I can't it's hard to think of another animal that makes a structure that is this aesthetically elaborate. Yeah, I mean, I know of animals who do make things that look artistic, like uh, there's the the pufferfish, it's a certain species of pufferfish that does those designs in the sand. And, and, you know, he's working with what he has, which is just sand. And so it's very meditative. It looks like, you know, a, a, a sand garden, like this, you know, very meditative thing. But it is, it's definitely not as... Again, this looks like uh, something you would find at a modern art museum. It, it's so incredibly elaborate, and so it, when you see this, it's it's so sh it's. I think there's something shocking about it because it defies this expectation that evolution produces just the brute most efficient animals that it can. Now, this is a misconception, of course. Like evolution, there's nothing efficient necessarily about evolution. It's you know, this very long process and it, it comes from a very simple rule, like whether or not something survives and procreates, and that creates an incredible abundance of complexity. And I think that is what you see here when you see beauty in the natural world and these like elaborate structures, elaborate rituals. It's like, okay, this is not, this is an unexpectedly roundabout way for a male to get a female's attention for mating. And so there are kind of these two competing theories about why something like the bowerbird could create something like this or, you know, other instances of beauty like bright plumage, beautiful songs, anything that doesn't have a clear practical purpose. Uh, one is that it's an honest signal of the animal's fitness. So Maybe with long plumage, the bird has to be particularly healthy, a good immune system to fight off parasites. Or maybe building the bower is advertising this bird's ability to forage, like its eyesight, uh, its mental acuity. Um, but there's another theory that Darwin himself was kind of partial to, right? Right. So Darwin proposed that maybe instead of some sort of honest signaling going on, maybe certain animals just like the way that certain colors or certain flourishes appear to them, and that females are making these mating choices based on essentially arbitrary aesthetic preferences. 
And I think he was kind of um, an exception among his peers at the time for suggesting something like that, because it required a certain level of recognition and respect for the sentience and the agency of animals. And at the time, I think it was still fairly popular to think of animals more like automatons. You know, they're kind of machines. They're just making these robotic behaviors and actions. They're not actually deciding things. And they certainly don't have um, conscious aesthetic preferences, you know, the way that people might. But Darwin, you know, Darwin had a different way of, of looking at it. And he suggested that this was a possibility. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because it runs afoul of two antiquated notions. One is that animals don't really have agency and also that females or women in human society don't have agency. So like if you're saying that female, a female animal somehow has some agency, that would be the ultimate taboo back uh, during uh, Darwin's time. Exactly. And I and one of his uh, peers, I think, was, you know, became infamous over time for saying that it could not be that, you know, nature was controlled by vicious feminine caprice, as he <laughs> called it. But, you know, the, these, uh, the whims of women could not possibly dictate, you know, the evolution of species. Yeah, I love that. I, I read that in your article. And actually, everyone should read this article if you like this episode. It's uh, How Beauty is Making Scientists Rethink Evolution. It's a wonderful article. And Unlike a podcast, you can actually look at these images of birds. So that's a nice thing about the written medium. And yeah, I, I this uh, this guy, St. George Mivart, uh, <laughs> having this like being offended at this notion that a bird and a female bird could somehow shape evolution. It's so it's so interesting to me how these social hang ups like are kind of uh cultural issues can influence how we analyze uh, animal behaviors. Do you think that's still a problem now? Yeah, absolutely. That's something I think about a lot, because I think, first of all, on sort of a fundamental biological level, all species are kind of trapped in their personal bubbles of perceptions, you know, which are really determined by, and partly determined by their biology, what kind of hardware do they have with which to perceive the world. And then um, any animal that has culture that adds so many extra layers of perceptual bias. And as, you know, as humans, as having particularly complex cultures that change so dramatically over time, that makes it even more complicated. And I think, um, you know, even if we look at just Western thought and Western culture alone, we can see a, a dr very dramatic shift in the way that we think about other animals and non-human species. I think for a long time now, we've been in this, this difficult process of trying to kind of, you know, shed some of these older ideas about animals as automatons and have greater recognition for animal agency, animal sentience. But it's, it's certainly not something that's been universally adopted, um, even within Western culture. It's definitely an ongoing process. But I think that, that you do see kind of this arc bending towards um, greater recognition. And in some ways, you could even think of it as a return to the earliest ways of engaging with animals. Because I, you know, I think that if you look at um, a lot of the cave art, where early humans were clearly obsessed with other species, even in this sort of worshipping, ritualistic way, and you think about a lot of indigenous cultures and mythologies, there used to be a much greater respect for other species and thinking of them as people, as, you know, as brethren, that, you know, they were just different kinds of people that we shared the planet with. Are you ready to share some joy and celebrate International Women's Day? 
M&M's has partnered with iHeart for Women Take the Mic, treating you to the most uplifting and empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So grab a handful of that creamy deliciousness. Kick back and spread some positivity into the world. From smashing glass ceilings to breaking records in sports, on stages, and at the box office, women are crushing it in every way imaginable. And with peanut butter M&Ms by your side, relax and keep listening to Women Take the Mic podcasts as you dance your way through inspiring stories, share laughs, and savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&Ms and the unstoppable force of women. Happy International Women's Day. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. This is Holly Fry from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features, like the panoramic moonroof, you can sit back, enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. It's an interesting thing because I've encountered these two kind of attitudes, which is one is that we over anthropomorphize animals. So uh, when, you know, in evolutionary biology, uh, when you study it, you're sometimes like told like, OK, you can't anthropomorphize. You, you can't think of this in terms of human terms. Uh, like if you're talking about, you know, maybe the ant wants to protect its colony. Well, does it really want that? Is it just driven by an instinct? Uh, and then on the other hand, I think there is also this mistake of under-anthropomorphizing in a way. Of course, animals are not going to have human behaviors because they're not humans. They won't have a human mind frame. But just because an animal is not like a furry human, uh, it is also, you know, the the, the all the things that make up our consciousness is present in many, many animals. And so this idea that they couldn't do something like, say, appreciate beauty is also a mistake. So like we it's it's this like tug of war. It's like, oh, well, we have to think about these animals scientifically. We can't attribute our own human emotions to an animal. And people uh, often when I have guests on my show, they're always apologizing because they're saying like, oh, I'm probably saying it like this animal has these feelings and they probably don't. It's like, well, you know, maybe they don't have the same feelings you would have as a human, but 
I think it is a mistake also to overcorrect and think like they don't have, they can't just do something because it's fun or they can't do something because it it's pretty and it's, it's interesting. Uh, and so like, you know, when you see uh, an animal playing, people think like, well, it's got to be because they're practicing for some purpose. It's like, well, they could just be having fun. And I, I think that's such an interesting idea of what's going on with these birds. Like maybe these birds uh, just find bright, flashy feathers, cool dances, bowers with lots of like blue and red items all together, just really pretty and cool. And, you know, I think that it is interesting that like as humans are like, that's pretty and that's really cool. And then the female birds are also, you know, per perhaps thinking in their own bird way the same thing. Absolutely. I completely agree. I think that especially in mainstream scientific communities, there is this almost reflexive tendency to avoid and challenge and resist anything that seems like it's being too anthropomorphic, you know, projecting too much of human um, mindsets onto other creatures. And there, it's certainly understandable why that would be the case, because it can go too far, and that can become its own kind of bias. And we just start to see what we want to see, not what's really there. But there's equally this danger of going too far in the other direction, and then we start to uh, undervalue what other species are capable of and objectify them, really, in some ways. We, we start to remove their agency. And it, it just, you know, when you when you really think about evolutionary biology, it doesn't make sense that there would be only one species that would be capable of, you know, appreciating uh, beauty in that sense. There has to be some sort of longer history of this, you know, ability forming over time. So it can't just be restricted um, to a single species. Yeah, it's a bit... It's a bit self-isolating and self-absorbed, isn't it, for us to think, oh, we're the only ones who can think things are just cool or pretty or have fun. Uh, it's, yeah. I think, more comforting to feel like other animals, you know, have those same emotions or similar emotions, at least. Absolutely. Yeah. To think about, you know, how did they develop in different species and, and where are sort of the where could it be convergent evolution? You know, where could it be, and you know, something entirely independent, and 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 what those differences might be like. It's also interesting to think about that just being something that may be inevitable once you reach a certain level of intelligence. Like I, I love looking at the behavior of octopuses because they're about as far evolutionarily as you can get from us. Like we diverged when we were what, like little flatworms of some kind. And they independently evolved a complex brain, complex eyes. Uh, basically, you know, all of these things they evolved that are, you know, recognizable to us, right? As like, and behaviors that are recognizable to us from like a flatworm. And they also demonstrate things like curiosity, which, you know, we can't know that they're curious, uh, but they sure act in that way. And so I think there's something... I find sort of inspiring over the idea that like, you know, maybe like birds and humans share, you know, an appreciation for beauty because we're, you know, both terrestrial animals and we kind of we we've share more in common, at least than humans and octopuses. But maybe there's also something to the idea that we could, you know, these kinds of things, this this ability to start to appreciate the environment that you're in just kind of happens as soon as you reach a certain level of awareness and intelligence. Yeah, I'm really fascinated by that idea as well. And so it's interesting to think of, for example, you know, a lot of, my understanding is that a lot of primates 
do not necessarily have great color vision, but the, the lineage of primates we descended from sort of regained some better um, color vision over time. And there are lots of hypotheses for why that might be the case. You know, maybe it helped us pick out ripe fruits amongst a tangle of green. Maybe it helped us socially because we could see when somebody was red in the face because they were angry or blushing because they were embarrassed and such. And so we could think that, you know, birds and um, humans might have this sort of attention to color and detail for some of the same pragmatic evolutionary reasons, you know, they, providing these discrete advantages. But then, you know, if a, a human, a bird, an octopus, whatever it might be, achieves a certain sort of baseline level of intelligence, of cognition, of self-awareness, you start to have all these extra abilities and phenomena emerging, you know, from that overall cognition that, that you know, it wasn't anticipated. You know, it's certainly, you know, it, uh, it, it's just these sort of unexpected byproducts. And aesthetic appreciation could be at least partly an example of that. Yeah, I think that sometimes something can start from a purpose that is more strictly speaking, quote unquote, practical, and then evolve into something that is more, it's still practical, but it is more complex. And so we see it as sort of this higher um, state of being. So with birds and with beauty, uh, I guess that is kind of the question. So like, if they are attracted to beauty, what determines beauty in the first place? So you know, they, it seems like it has to start somewhere, although maybe some people would argue, no, it doesn't necessarily have to start anywhere. It could be spontaneous, but it seems like there, there may have been at some point, like a practical purpose to being attracted to bright colors or plumage. Like, is there, is there even an answer to how this bird appreciation for beauty started? Yeah, so like you said, some scientists, I think, would argue that, you know, certain aesthetic preferences are truly arbitrary and do not have clear origins or explanations. But there's another group of scientists that are really interested in sort of uncovering the origins of these types of preferences. And in some cases, they've been able to trace them to quirks of an animal's anatomy or to something to do with their evolutionary history. Um, for example, there's a group of guppies in Trinidad, I believe, that are really attracted to bright orange patches on their mates. And it turns out that they are also really attracted to these bright orange tree fruits that fall into the water that they feed on. So some some researchers have proposed that maybe this, you know, initial practical, pragmatic, um, evolutionary advantageous attraction to orange for sustenance was then co-opted into the mating process and became this more aesthetic preference. And that type of co-opting of kind of bleeding of, you know, the pragmatic into the aesthetic could be happening um, in all kinds of species um, throughout evolutionary history. This is a complete shot in the dark and probably not true, but I do wonder, and I, I have wondered this sometimes, that when we see a cute animal and we joke like, oh, I'm going to eat you up, like if there is something, and again, I, this is complete guesswork, but like if at some point it was based in an appetite, but then it also triggered our cuteness thing of like maybe it has a human baby kind of face, like those proportions, and we wanted to eat them. But then we're like, ah, you look too much like a baby. I don't actually want it. You're too cute. But then are like that cuteness and then like, ah, I'm going to eat you. It's like they kind of get mixed up. Uh, and it's, you know, I, I don't know. It's it's something that I think is kind of funny because like when I'm 
with my dog and she's really cute. I'm like, I'm going to eat you. And it's like, maybe my great, 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 great grandma was like thinking that about actually eating a dog, but then was like, actually, you're too cute. I can't eat you. (laughs) (laughs) That's really interesting. That makes me think of one of the one of the hypotheses for the origin of kissing is that, you know, in some cultures, there is this really intimate and and another species too. There's an intimate mouth to mouth feeding process where the parent will chew up food and then regurgitate it to the infant. Um, and so this sort of, you know, extremely intimate mouth to mouth contact eventually gets co-opted again, becomes something else, um, you know, moves from the parental to the sexual to the reproductive. Yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting how I think a lot of times in evolution, um, we see something starts out one way and then, you know, through um, this combination of natural selection and chance and then sometimes sort of conscious perception becomes something else entirely. And that's actually, you know, something that may have happened with um, feathers and plumage. So, you know, there's this thinking that initially um, dinosaurs evolved, you know, sort of early feathers, maybe for warmth, um, for temperature regulation, but they became this incredible canvas for aesthetic experimentation because now you have this really interesting surface area and this material that can do all kinds of interesting things with pigment and with form. And so that initially pragmatic adaptation became something more aesthetic over time. Yeah, that's so interesting to me. I mean, I I do love that we've kind of revitalized our image of dinosaurs to have all of these, you know, the the colors that we see in more modern paleo art showing dinosaurs as maybe they actually were instead of like the kind of skin wrapped like uh, Jurassic Park, although I love Jurassic Park, you know, the kind of more, uh, you know, olive and, and brown toned dinosaurs. And it, it's, I would love, like, because then when you think about it, like maybe they had some kind of like mating rituals, like funny dances, like imagining some kind of dinosaur doing a goofy little dance that like the bowerbird does is pretty incredible. Yeah, um, like a moonwalking T-Rex with some, <laughs> you know, <laughs> fluffy appendages. I can see it. I can definitely see it. Are you ready to share some joy and celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's has partnered with iHeart for Women Take the Mic, treating you to the most uplifting and empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So grab a handful of that creamy deliciousness, kick back and spread some positivity into the world from smashing glass ceilings to breaking records in sports on stages and at the box office. Women are crushing it in every way imaginable. And with peanut butter M&Ms by your side, relax and keep listening to women take the mic podcasts as you dance your way through inspiring stories, share laughs and savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&Ms and the unstoppable force of women. Happy International Women's Day. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. 
This is Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. So what is runaway selection? Like, how can you have a trait that goes from being practical to being pure decorative frippery? Like, you start out with wings, uh, and then they kind of, like, turn into something. Like, you, you'll have, maybe more accurately, you'll have, like, a tail feather, and that's very useful for flight. In a bird of paradise, it becomes really long. It actually becomes kind of a burden for the bird. It, it uh, doesn't really help flight. It actually hinders them, but the ladies love it. So having these long tail feathers really helps them in sexual selection. So how does it go from being like, how can you have a, an impractical uh, trait in evolution? Yeah. So I think we could imagine a population of birds that let's say they have long maroon tail feathers and the feathers are useful for both flight and they're also this maroon color because it's helpful for, for camouflage in their particular habitat. And then for whatever reason, females really strongly prefer males that have the longest and the sort of brightest maroon tail feathers. So though, and if the preference is strong enough, those males will be much more reproductively successful than any of their counterparts, regardless of their other traits and abilities. And then their children will have, you know, also extremely long and extremely bright maroon tail feathers. And then generation by generation, the, you know, the, the, ma the males with the longest and the brightest feathers will get chosen over and over again until they reach ridiculous proportions. And they may even come up against some physical, physiological limit where the feathers are now so long that they're actually hindering their ability to fly or to survive in general. And it, you know, kind of reaches, you know, that, that sort of um, counterbalancing. But it can still get to this really extreme point. And that's exactly what we see in birds of paradise and in bowerbirds and many other creatures. I mean, it's astounding because it is the birds themselves, their preferences, shaping evolution more powerfully than, say, environmental dangers. Yeah, and I find that incredibly interesting to think about is that this internal preference, you know, this aspect of the bird's consciousness has become this incredibly powerful agent in their own evolution, um, which is just so there's like this internal landscape in addition to the external environment that is, you know, shaping, literally shaping their anatomy and their behaviors in an incredibly powerful way. What is an example of runaway sexual selection that you love that we have not mentioned yet? So one of the examples in the article and that a lot of people find really interesting is the club-winged mannequin, which is this fascinating little tropical bird, which I believe is the only bird that produces sounds through a process called stridulation, yeah. which is similar to how some insects do it. Like if you think of like, um, you know, certain crickets or grasshoppers 
rubbing their anatomy, rubbing their sort of their wings or their bony parts together really, really fast and really, really quickly to produce this intense thrumming. And so the the club winged mannequin, for whatever reason, the females love this this stridulated thrumming sound. And so the males evolved over time to produce it, completely contorting the bones in their wings to the point that it actually hinders their ability to fly. And even the females have inherited some of this sort of warped bone anatomy and the genetics underlying it. And even their flight is a bit hindered by it, which is very, you know, that really goes against some of the sort of classical ideas of evolution by natural selection, always making animals, you know, better adapted to their environments. Well, this adaptation makes them more reproductively attractive, the males anyways, but it's not really conferring any advantage whatsoever to the females to have that kind of warped skeletal system. So it's a really extreme example of runaway selection. I'm going to play really quickly the sound of a club-winged mannequin uh, because it is, it is absolutely incredible. I mean, it's incredible. It's hard to even tell that this is not like a call it's making through vocalization. It is the stridulation of its wings. And you can, when you're watching it, it's vibrating so quickly you can barely tell that's what's going on. Yeah, there are certain animal sounds that are just so surreal or otherworldly. Like I always think of Weddell seals. Like I couldn't believe that was coming from an animal the first time I heard these sort of space age, um, you know, um, murmurs coming from these seals and Laser Arctic guns. waters. <laughs> yeah, I was like, what? And this is similar. Like it sounds so, to me, it sounds so electronic, like mm -hmm. almost artificial. It's like, wow, that's coming from a living organism. Like a that's, synthesizer. You could probably yeah. make a synthesizer out of club wing mannequins, although that yeah. would, would not be ethical, but it would sound great. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, that's actually uh, at the end of the show. I always play a game called uh, "Guess Who's Squawking," uh, and I play a mystery animal sound. That won't happen yet because we're not we're not near the end yet. But uh, I'm excited to do that. But yeah, I mean that actually reminds me of another animal you bring up in your article, which is uh, the these frogs that create this really interesting sound, right? So you know, a lot of different amphibians will make croakings and sounds um, during the mating process. Um, but there's a certain type of toadlet um, that has had a really interesting evolutionary history um, with doing this. And if, so if I remember correctly, there's kind of this danger because if the toadlets are too loud in their mating calls, they actually will attract um, bats that eat them. Um, but the males need to sort of make these little croaks, which sound actually a lot like laser guns. They're, <laughs> they're very, they're kind of, you know, similarly interesting to the clubbing mannequins calls to make these little whines um, in order to attract females. And it was very perplexing to researchers why females were attracted to this particular sound. Um, and over time, there's been some research suggesting that it basically was a quirk of their evolutionary history in that males that happened to produce this particular frequency activated this sort of long abandoned auditory channel. So they were simply more noticeable to females compared to other males that weren't making the sounds in this correct frequency. And whereas originally the thinking might have been that the toadlets making this particular sound were fitter in some way, they were larger, they were better mates for the females. Now it seems like that perhaps is not the case. 
um, they just sort of chanced upon this quirk of evolution that allowed them to be more noticeable to the females and therefore more attractive. You know, to us, you know, none of these sounds like are particularly interesting or attractive. Like as humans, like they're, you know, they're just Speak sort of for like, yourself. Well, yeah, to <laughs> some people, I should say, they're just sort of a. It's, it's difficult to understand why this particular whiting, you know, would be sexy or attractive. But to the, to, you know, to the toadlets, it is incredibly appealing. Um, and so that just, you know, sort of speaks to how different um, these sort of aesthetic preferences can be from one species to another. And this could also be uh, through visual channels, right? Like you could have a visual cue, bright colors that just happen to be extremely noticeable like we we each all animals have their own perceptive field through hearing vision taste smell electroreception all sorts of senses and so if you're looking for a mate uh and you hit on one of the like one of the the most important thing in mating and dating is be noticeable so if you can make your prospective mate notice you that is a huge huge step in terms of getting towards a successful mating. I mean, I think we just uh, we just talked about this on the show a couple of weeks ago, but there are the the um, mobula rays, which will jump up out of the ocean and slam back down. And it's like, why are they doing that? That seems like such a waste of energy. And they're trying to get attention so that they can try to find a mate. So it seems like that is that, like those kind that kind of avenue of like, you just, if you can hit on a specific perceptive I guess um, a, a person, something that a specific species will perceive, especially strongly, like a certain sound, a certain color, and that just is like so bright to them. That may be a selective pressure for um, having some kind of sexual selection that incorporates that extremely strong signal for that specific species. Absolutely. One of the scientists I talk about in the article, Molly Cummings, has done some really interesting work on fishes. And she's shown that, you know, different fish in different environments will have different aesthetic preferences based on the way that light is moving through their environment. So, you know, different types of aquatic habitats, different opacity of water, whether it's really clear, whether it's murky, that affects what type of wavelengths are best able to penetrate and move through that water. And so different species of fish will have different preferences for, say, polarized light, you know, versus a different type of light, depending um, on how their environment constrains what they were able to best perceive. That's so interesting. I mean, we've already mentioned a few animals that are are not birds, like uh, fish, the toadlets. Uh, do you think that these other animals could also potentially have like a concept of beauty, um, even if it's not necessarily beautiful plumage? Like even if it's the sound, the the weird squeaking sound of a toadlet, like to them. Do you think it is something that could be beautiful? Yeah, I think that, you know, the further we kind of go back in evolutionary history, you know, like getting back to the ocean, back to, you know, the mother of all life, back to the fish uh, before they came on land, like it gets harder and harder to sort of um, put ourselves in their mindset and sort of understand, you know, how they perceive the world. But I think, you know, there, there, there's the famous um, Cambridge Declaration of Consciousness. Like there seems to be pretty widespread acceptance among scientists that all vertebrates and some invertebrates like octopuses and honeybees and such have 
consciousness. You know, they are conscious. They have this basic level of being able to understand and engage with the world and perhaps even be aware of themselves. So I would think that is certainly possible amongst any type of vertebrate we're discussing, including fish. And then maybe where it gets trickier would be something like the peacock spider, mm-hmm. um, you know, which is which is an invertebrate like the octopus and is very small, you know, <laughs> so like, like a honeybee has a very little brain just in terms of, you know, size, but has an incredibly um, interesting and complex mating ritual and these beautiful glittering iridescent abdomens that almost look like Fabergé eggs with incredibly intricate patterns, you know, really intense blues and reds and oranges. And they flip up their abdomens mm-hmm. and they, they wave their legs around and do this really cool little mating dance um, as part of their courtship. So that has a lot of parallels to what birds, um, you know, do, um, even though these spiders are invertebrates. And yeah, it's really, it's fascinating to think about what's going through the spider's mind, you know, what's going through their, their mind as they're sort of evaluating their mates' um, colors and dance moves. And I mean, it's just an extraordinary level of beauty from our perspective evolving in in a creature that is that many people are terrified of or even revile, you know, but these are just incredibly beautiful animals. Yeah, I love jumping spiders so much. They are, I mean, to me, every jumping spider is so cute. It's those two big uh, eyes that they have. And they're, uh, I think that the, they're really the only spider or one of the only spiders that has such a visual perception uh, I think they're the only uh, type of spider that can like actually move their retinas around. And there was a recent study looking into, actually, I think I d- discussed this last week, but a recent study that looks into the, uh, the possibility that jumping spiders might uh, have REM sleep, like rapid eye movement sleep. And so, of course, we don't know that they're dreaming and having visual dreams, but we do know that Animals that do have rapid eye movement sleep, like humans, probably do have visual dreams. So it's a possibility maybe these spiders are dreaming about seeing uh, an, an amazing display from another uh, eligible spider. But it's it's hard to it's so hard to imagine something so small and simple having a really rich, deep consciousness. And I'm not saying that they do, but it is fascinating that. They have. There is evidence that there is more to them than them just being basically like having the awareness of, you know, a robot or you know, like a a tiny automaton. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Do spiders dream in Technicolor? (laughs) For the ages, (laughs) jumping spiders, anyways. (laughs) Yeah, and you know, something that I've always found really interesting about this is from jumping spiders to birds is that an animal's perception of beauty often overlaps with our own. Sometimes it doesn't, like with the toadlet's little pew-pew sounds, uh, but a lot of times it does. Oh, other examples of when it doesn't are like hooded seals when they inflate their nostril and it creates this bright red balloon. Maybe not so attractive to us, Um, But very alluring to female hooded seals. But yeah, I mean, peacock jumping spider, birds, uh, the bowerbirds that create things that look like works of art that a human would make. With birds, their aesthetic preferences seem to align with our own, which is, you know, really interesting. Like, how can we share this sense of beauty with a bird that we're so otherwise different from? They are living dinosaurs. They are very unlike us. 
Uh, do you think there's any reason that there's this overlap? Is it pure coincidence or is it maybe because of some shared evolutionary history? I do think there has to be at least some shared evolutionary history explaining that um, just because we are both vertebrates. So, you know, going back to our vertebrate ancestors, we, we must have inherited some sort of basic sensory perceptions, you know, and of course, those would have continued to evolve over time in our very different lineages. Um, but there's probably still some very fundamental, you know, abilities there that we do have in common. And, and you know, it, you know, clearly with um, bowerbirds and certain other kinds of birds, we do share this attention to this interest in bright color, you know, in fruit, um, in flowers. And, and actually flowers is one of the most interesting ways that I have found to sort of, you know, think through these questions of beauty and the, the potential purpose of beauty um, and, and the origin of beauty. Because if you think about it, it's really bizarre that we as humans are so obsessed with flowers because they really have nothing to do with us in terms of their evolutionary history. You know, flowers co-evolved with insects and birds and other pollinators to attract those pollinators. That is sort of why they look the way they do and why they smell the way they do. Um, and insects and birds are privy to this entire dimension of floral beauty that's totally hidden to us because they can see in the ultraviolet part of the spectrum and they can see um, patterns on flowers that we cannot with, with our own just, you know, human biological eyes. So what is it about flowers that, you know, we don't just like flowers, like we're, we become completely obsessed with them, like tulip mania, you know, uh, many centuries ago in the Netherlands when tulips reached absurd prices or the continuing um, passion for orchids that kind of began with the invention of like early glass houses and bringing tropical specimens abroad and things like that. Um, and so, you know, I think you could think of um, pragmatic reasons that would be true for a lot of species, like understanding that flowers turn into fruits, turn into food. So there's this potential for sustenance. But then could flowers also just be impinging upon what we were talking about earlier, which are kind of these emergent phenomena that come out of a certain level of cognition and intelligence. So they're just, you know, they're hitting upon our sort of ability to appreciate color and form and smell and the harmony of all of those things in a natural creation, you know, in, in an organic form. Um, and so, I, you know, it's just it's just fascinating to sort of use flowers as a way to sort of explore um, all of those interests. And I love the fact that bowerbirds choose flowers as well. That's one of the ornaments they choose for their bowers is, is flowers. So clearly we're not the only ones who have that appreciation. So if you want to flatter a bowerbird, you could get them like a bouquet. Exactly. <laughs> Good information for everyone who wants to flirt with a bowerbird. I mean, that's that is incredible. I, I I think it is. I think it's too often that we think about things like beauty and art as something frivolous, unimportant, just like window dressing. You know, something that is not really it's not it's not a serious topic it's not serious science or something and it is such a huge mistake i think because that is when you think when we think about our consciousness it's not such a mystery why we find food appealing right like we need to eat it's pretty obvious why we would enjoy food or why we would enjoy having food around holidays and stuff but like something like appreciating beauty not just in each other, but in the natural world, like 
seeing flowers. Like some of the most famous painters were absolutely obsessed with natural scene, natural beauty, flowers, uh, painting animals. Uh, it is, I think, really interesting that we have that in our consciousness. And if we get behind, if we, if we solve this mystery of like, why we enjoy beauty, why other animals enjoy beauty. I think that would unlock a lot of really interesting things about the brain, about our psychology that would be really informative. But I think in order for us to do that, we really have to appreciate this as something that is super important, deeply, deeply important. That's a great point. And I think that, you know, your point about, you know, thinking of beauty as frivolous, it even gets embedded in scientific concepts and scientific ways of thinking because you know the technical term for all of this incredible plumage that we've been talking about is sexual ornaments mm -hmm. right and so the word ornaments like it immediately is kind of um downplaying the importance because we think of something as oh that's just um decorative mm -hmm. right it's it is not really that important it's just an ornament whereas as you're saying, you know, this question of where beauty comes from and what it is doing gets at some of the biggest questions, biggest outstanding questions in evolutionary biology and some of the, the long-standing tensions, you know, in the history of science. Yeah, absolutely. So if we could all just kind of like get over ourselves and admit it's really interesting that stuff is pretty and flowers are awesome. Exactly. Yeah, I, I've never, never understood uh, flowery as a, you know, as a diss or an insult. Like, you know, I, I think that if, if I could write a sentence as beautiful as a flower, I'd be very proud of that sentence. I know, I know. I, I also love flowers. If I, as a podcaster, could somehow put flowers in all y'all's ears, I would do it. Uh, <laughs> if, if the technology existed, which it doesn't, unfortunately. But before we go, as I mentioned earlier, we have a game at the end of the show, which is Guess Who's Squawkin', the mystery animal sound game. Now, I do say squawkin', but this is not restricted to the birds. It is any animal in the world. Uh, and you, the listener, and even you, the guest, if you would like, uh, can try to guess who is squawkin'. So this is last week's sound. This was the hint. It is the largest of its order, but that doesn't mean it'll refuse a good cuddle. All right, well, can you guess who's squawking? And no pressure, because if I, honestly, if I had to play this game, I would probably lose most of the time, so. Your your prestige is not on the line here. <laughs> <laughs> that is a really interesting one. So at first, my mind was going like aquatic, like some sort of cetacean, you know. But then I was like listening to the background sound and it didn't quite seem to match. And then, then I was thinking maybe that is a, a bird of some sort. And you're, so you're saying it's the largest of its order. Um, gosh, I'm wondering... I'm wondering if it's like a, one of those really big birds, like an ostrich, an emu, or a cassowary. I don't know. I know I've heard that sound or a very similar sound before. I'm having a really hard time pinpointing what it is. You were closer with aquatic, although only, okay. only halfway there. Only halfway okay. there. Was it an aquatic mammal then? An aquatic mammal. A, a, a semi-aquatic mammal. Or no, actually, semi yes, a semi... Sorry. A semi-aquatic mammal. Okay. Something... Something like a, a semi-aquatic mammal. Mm, something like um, like a, a walrus or a seal. Something of that nature. Or 
close, but not not quite. Yeah, I'm stumped. Officially stumped. This is actually a capybara. Oh. Yes, the largest rodent in the world. Congratulations to the three fastest guessers who guess correctly, Grant W., Michael D., and Jess C. I had guinea pigs as a kid, and uh, they're not... They're they're relatively they look like huge guinea pigs and they're relatively related, but guinea pigs will make this kind of like this little like squeaking sound as well when usually when they're eating and they're really happy. But it is bizarre to hear it coming out of this like giant. You you it's hard to expect it because this animal's so huge. I before looking this up, I had no idea that capybaras sounded essentially like a little guinea pig. My mind was not going there at all. That is really interesting. <laughs> no, I, I know. And I I mean, I was shocked to hear it because I would have thought because capybaras are so huge, I would have thought that their voices would be deeper. But instead, you're basically hearing what a guinea pig sounds like. Right. So they are the largest rodent in the world. They are a semi-aquatic herbivore who lives in South America. And it looks like a giant guinea pig. They can weigh around 140 pounds or a little over 60 kilograms. So, yeah, I think people are pretty familiar with the laid-back vibes of the capybara. They're very chill. But it's interesting because these, like, this chill vibe that they have, it's not because they're so big they lack natural predators. They do actually have predators, but... It is because they actually enjoy the company of their peers. They typically live in groups of around 20. They can even live in huge groups of up to 100 individuals. And the squeaking sound that this capybara is making is probably just like a little happy sound because he's expecting to be fed soon. Wow, I love that. Just like it's the same sound my pet guinea pigs would make when I'm like getting out the alfalfa for them and they see me doing it. Uh, and this they is- would- Make that little squeaking noise. I love that. This is. I was actually just looking into the sort of controversy over what types of cats can roar versus purr. Mm-hmm. And, you know, classically it was divided amongst big cats and, and smaller cats. And supposedly only the big cats could roar and only the smaller ones could purr. Um, but there's some really interesting exceptions. Like, um, I think nobody has ever heard a snow leopard roar before, oh, even though it should technically be capable of it. And there's also a lot of, you know, sort of debate about what technically qualifies as a roar or a purr. And so you can kind of, yeah, it, it gets it gets pretty complex over that. But sometimes you hear like a very large, anatomically large cat, like a cheetah or something, make a very domestic cat-like yes. sound. And it's it's very, uh, there's some dissonance there. Like you weren't expecting that sound to come out of that animal. Yeah, they can like do really high-pitched chirping sounds that sounds like a little baby chick. But it's right. coming out of this huge cheetah. And I, when I first heard that from, coming from a cheetah, I was shocked. I, I thought it was like a hoax. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so on to this week's mystery animal sound. The hint, it is actually good for these guys to have an inflated sense of pride. Uh, and if you've been paying close attention to the episode and you read Ferris Jaber's article, How Beauty is Making Scientists Rethink Evolution, you are sure to know the answer. So, Ferris, you cannot answer this because I know you right. know the answer to it. <laughs> but uh, I... 
I think I've left enough clues that uh, some of you out there will get it. So, Ferris, thank you so much for joining me today. Tell people where they can read your articles and your writings. Thank you so much. This was absolutely wonderful. Um, most of my magazine writing has been for the New York Times Magazine lately. Um, and my website is just uh, ferrisjaber.com. My most recent article was in National Geographic, and it's all about the tiny microscopic organisms that live in forest soil and are really important for forest ecosystems as a whole. So if I have an episode sometime in the future that is about forest ecosystems, you can probably guess that I read one of Ferris's articles and was inspired. Uh, <laughs> so. Yeah, thank you so much. Definitely check out uh, How Beauty is Making Scientists Rethink Evolution. It's a great article. It's a great companion to this episode. And thank you guys so much for listening. If you're enjoying the show and you leave a rating or review, I read all the ratings. I read them all. I print them all out, put them in a big binder, and put it under my pillow. Uh, I, I don't actually do that, but mentally I do. I cherish them all. Uh, and thanks so much to the Space Cossacks for their super awesome song, Exolumina. Creature Features is a production of iHeartRadio. For more shows like the one you just heard, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or hey, guess what? Wherever you listen to your favorite shows. See you next Wednesday. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Ready to celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's and iHeart present Women Take the Mic, sharing empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&M's and spread some positivity. From breaking glass ceilings to dominating in sports and entertainment, women truly are unstoppable. This is Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a Corolla built just for you. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places.